It's Monday, September 30th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, the one and only Jason Moser. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, indeed. Happy last day of the quarter. That is right, the last day of the quarter. Or, you know, it's just the, the eve of the beginning of a new quarter. The eve you know? of Q4. <laughs> yeah. Kick into October and earnings season and Halloween and all the goodness that comes at the end of the year. And did I see correctly? I mean, I, I you know, I lose track of this stuff over time. It's International Podcast Day. Happy 1,690? That's, that's the number episode we're doing right now, 1,690. I mean, I, I just, you know, I'm a little bit. Got a little lump forming here in my throat, Chris. I've been around here for a lot of them. Didn't think we were going to hit that when we started in January of 2011. Very grateful. Uh, we're going to hit some real estate. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. We're going to start, unfortunately, with another retailer declaring bankruptcy, and that's Forever 21, a privately held company, but obviously ripple effects for publicly traded retailers, particularly in the apparel space, which is what Forever 21 does. They are. Closing nearly half of their locations around the world. They've got somewhere just under 800. They're going to close about 350. And they've got some financing to get through this. Uh, this, I don't know. This, <laughs> this seems like it, it, it does seem like there is a path forward for them. Um, but I don't know. It's it's yet another as we get closer to the end of the year and we start thinking backwards on like, well, what will we remember about 2019? I think one thing will be the high flying IPOs that turned out to be not profitable companies. I think that'll be one thing, and I think once again, big chain retail struggling is going to be another. Yeah, and I mean it. It's it's not something that I I'm not terribly surprised at this. I mean I've two daughters, so I've been inside of Forever Twenty One more than I care to you know discuss. And I mean you can see that they are just these big footprint stores with just a tremendous amount of stuff. And if you get in there at the wrong time of the day, then half that stuff is on the floor. And you know, it, it just it, there's not real there's no competitive advantage in this line of work. It's not to say that people don't need clothes. Obviously, we do. Um, but it's just when you're looking at it from the perspective of where things are going, where commerce is going, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to maintain these massive footprint stores. And I mean, Forever 21, I think, for the longest time, had really built that brand around a core audience. To see them trying to move into other uh, other other demographics. I mean, I, I saw where they were testing out men's clothes and whatnot. I mean, I just I don't think that's something that's feasible with a brand like that. Um, and so you fast forward to today, this core market that we call fast fashion, which is just like this, you know, you can go in there and get whatever you want for cheap, and it's it's not something that's unique. But I mean, you know, you can go in there and find a lot of cool stuff to buy for you know if if you're looking for clothes. Fast fashion is really having a tough time. It's running into some headwinds as consumer shopping behavior is changing. I mean, sustainable fashion is something that's becoming more important. Uh, even used fashion. I mean, it's really interesting to see in, in this space companies like The Real Real, uh, which is essentially like, uh, I mean, I don't want to say used, but I guess it really is kind of, it's it's just consignment uh, retail. And, and it's, but it's, it's online, right? Or you've got companies like Farfetch that are bringing the luxury goods market online. Um, it, is, it is about figuring out ways to be as efficient as you possibly can. Um, having this massive uh, footprint of stores is turning out to be 
not an advantage, but maybe a disadvantage in many cases. And, and uh, you know, it's it's gotten forever twenty one to this point where Chapter Eleven they'll reorg, hopefully streamline the operations, uh, shrink their footprint a little bit, and perhaps uh, they'll still be able to exist just in, in smaller form. Well, and I think there are a couple of things going on here. One is you think of how they got to where they are today, and you touched on this. It's uh, they grew not just their store count, but also the size of their stores, so that there was this impetus within the company to expand in outside of their core audience. So going outside of young people and saying, "Okay, we're going to really push into men's clothing. We're going to push into lingerie. We're going to, you know, yeah. as opposed to just sort of sticking to what was succeeding for them to that point." As opposed to, by the way, a company like Lululemon, which really has taken a methodical approach. It, I think we're in year three now of their stated plan to expand international and expand into menswear. And they've been very methodical about it. They're uh, being very smart about taking more of an omni-channel approach as opposed to, we're going to have these huge blowout stores. And you know, Forever 21 just Got too big too fast, and um, now they're going to have to get a lot smaller. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, you look at the implications this could have for investors and in, in how it, how this could affect investors. I mean, Forever Twenty One is not a publicly traded company, but Simon Property Group is. That's a real estate investment trust that has a big presence in the mall and outlet store area. And so, uh, Forever Twenty One is their seventh largest tenant by rents. So, I mean, this is going to be something that certainly affects. Simon to a degree, and and I mean, if you look at Simon and their their core market, I mean, malls aren't exactly booming these days, and it's understandable. I mean, consumers are getting their things different ways. Consequently, you've seen Simon have not really that stellar of a go over the last five years. Typically, with real estate investment trusts, you know, they're they're not going to be the biggest capital appreciators, but you're going to pull in a nice dividend yield uh, along the way. And, and certainly, you've been able to do that with, with Simon, but the stock itself has, has underperformed uh, woefully. And, and you know this is not the kind of news that they want to hear. Um, so, it's going to be interesting to see how this shakeout continues. It, just, it feels like this commercial real estate space, we're finding a lot of, of Stuff that they're not sure what to do with it right now. Um, the nice thing is for someone like Simon, they have the resources to be able to pivot and, and use, uh, do other things with his real estate. But I think that's going to take a little while to figure out. And one more thing, I think, to watch in the public markets is in 2020 when Old Navy gets spun out of Gap. I mean, Old yeah. Navy is something of a comp to Forever 21 in terms of its core audience. And if you look at the way Old Navy is marketing itself. These days, they're looking to expand outside of their because Old Navy really made its bones as uh, inexpensive, decent quality clothing for kids, and they're marketing more towards adults now. It'll yeah. be interesting to see if that pays off for them um, because. If they go down the road of Forever Twenty One, I mean, hopefully they're the executives that are watching this play out and saying, "Okay, this this is not the route we need to go. We need to get more into e-commerce." Uh, speaking of real estate, Blackstone Group is buying a portfolio of warehouses from Colony Capital uh, for just under six billion dollars. Uh, interesting in a couple of ways here, but first and foremost for Blackstone Group. Um, do you like this purchase? Stock down one or two percent, 
but uh, I'm assuming nobody's too concerned about the check they just wrote. No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I think it's really interesting to see the juxtaposition of the strategy between Blackstone and Colony. I mean, they're kind of doing two different things here. Uh, Blackstone is really looking to uh, gain as much presence in the e-commerce space, particularly the last mile, as they can get in. So that's what this that's what this deal is all about is really adding to this real estate portfolio that's going to play into this move towards more and more e-commerce and us getting our stuff as quickly as possible. I think that's a trend that's here to stay. I mean, I think we're all pretty pretty much bullish on e-commerce and and uh, us getting our stuff faster and faster. And and so from that perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense from Blackstone's um, for Blackstone's strategy here to, to to try to gain as much presence in that space as they can. This is the second such deal uh, this year uh, for them. And and when you look at Colony, I mean Colony very much the other side of the coin. There, they're like, hey, you know what? We want to get out of this traditional retail space. We want to get out of this traditional um not retail but real estate space because they're looking at you know the way technology has changed commercial real estate and it really it's it goes so far beyond retail i mean you think hotel owners and the pressure they're feeling from companies like airbnb or companies like like WeWork and how that's changing uh, the commercial real estate space for for places of employment. I mean, it is just a, a much different space now. And so, Colony looking to get a little bit more into the digital uh, space and looking at the infrastructure, uh, mobile phone towers, data centers, stuff like that. So, two very distinct strategies, and, and I think it actually works out well for both of them. The thing about real estate, it's it's pretty darn prohibitive for a lot of people. I mean, it's it's difficult to invest in real estate because it requires a lot of capital. And and Blackstone has a ton of it. And so uh, I think this really lines up with with the general strategy they laid out at the beginning of the year. And it's one that I think makes a lot of sense. Um, if if you believe in the in the the tailwinds for for e-commerce and if you think that it's going to become more and more important over time for this last mile to really come through for customers so that we can get our stuff more quickly then I think you have to look at what Blackstone's doing here and and, and like it. I'm not so surprised by what's happening with Blackstone's stock and as you said this is the second deal of its kind so they're clearly pushing into the warehouse space. I'm a little surprised Colony Capital stock isn't moving higher. It's basically flat today and they just I'm assuming it has to do with the debt, uh, just because this Blackstone is somewhere in the neighborhood of I think a fifty-five, sixty billion dollar company. Colony Capital is about two and a half it's, to three billion. Yeah, so considering smaller. the money they just got. I'm a little surprised, but again, like I said, maybe it's just the debt. Yeah, and I mean, you can never really, you can never really predict. I mean, we talk about this all the time. You can never really predict the what the market is going to do on any given day, how it's going to receive uh, any any piece of news. Uh, I think, generally speaking, though, you look at this deal; it lines up uh, for both companies well, given the strategies that they're pursuing. Um, Time will tell whether it's they're making the right call or not. Uh, last week uh, on our YouTube channel, Matt Argusinger, Austin Smith, and I did a live Q and A about real estate. Uh, you can check that out. Uh, you can check out MillionAcres.com, um, which is um, uh, the business that Maddie and Austin are heading up. Um, and one of the things uh, Matt in particular talked about was those REITs that are playing into the warehouse space because of the rise of e-commerce. Yeah, and absolutely. So, a lot of good stuff there. Our, our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. You can also tweet at us on the Twitters. Uh, we got a question from at Smile Girl Lawyer. 
who writes, I need to roll over a 401k into a traditional IRA. With everyone jittery about a potential downturn, should I buy bits over time or should I invest all at once? I'm a long-term investor, but a potential downturn could mean a sale on good stocks and companies. Uh, thinking about this the right way yeah. in terms of a potential downturn and what it could mean. Yeah, and I mean this is a very good question, and I think everybody's most people's knee-jerk reaction would immediately say, "Well, don't just." Invest it all at once. I mean, be methodical. Go slowly. Dollar cost average in. Um, and, and the reason why we would say that is just traditionally there is data that shows that that's a good strategy. Now, there's a really interesting uh, blog post on. I found it on uh, Twitter actually one day. The guy's name is Nick Majuli. I think his Twitter handle is at Dollars and Data. But he he posted on this very topic, and, and as you could judge by his name, the dollars and data. He's using a lot of data to make uh, you know informed decisions, and he actually presented the data that showed that in most cases, investing a lump sum is going to statistically give you better returns than dollar cost averaging. Now, there are some things to take into consideration here because ultimately this really all depends on who you are, what your goals are, your risk tolerance, um, and all of that good stuff. Because it's not just as cut and dry saying that the math bears this out and therefore you should just go all lump sum. Uh, you have to ask yourself first and foremost when we talk about investing, you're looking, I think, to invest in individual stocks because you're talking about this potential downturn with some with some opportunity to buy stocks. This data that was presented by Nick was based on investing in the S and P 500. So it's it's using the S and P 500 and saying that you're just going with that index. And, and so obviously we invest in individual stocks because we believe if we find good businesses and we invest in them and hold those shares for long periods of time that is one of the primary sources of outperformance so that's that's something we believe in and it's something i believe in and it's something i you know continue to do now if you just invest all of your money in one lump sum into the s&p 500 index then you're not going to have any money to buy individual stocks because your money will be all in an index so you have to ask yourself first and foremost how are you trying to invest because if you're just going with an index, well, there's some data out there that says maybe a lump sum is the way to go. But if you're looking to invest in individual stocks, you don't want to do that because you're not going to have any money to then invest in individual stocks when that opportunity arises. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, are you going to have the intestinal fortitude to pull the trigger when those dips come, when those buying opportunities arise? Because as much as we believe that we will be able to pull that trigger when the time comes, when that time comes, our emotions play tricks on us, and it becomes a little bit more difficult sometimes to do. So, I think that the short answer is, it really does all depend. I do think, based on the question, Smile Girl Lawyer, I think, Yep. Gotta love that name. Um, I think that based on what she's saying, uh, looking to buy individual stocks, then you want to have that money to be able to do that uh, when the opportunity arises. Uh, and, and you know, I mean, one final thought here is. If you have a job and you're and you're contributing to a retirement plan, I mean that is a form of dollar cost averaging right there. I mean, I, you know, I dollar cost average every paycheck, and so do you, and I think most people here. Uh, so, so there are a lot of different ways to do it, and and there's some some interesting data out there that supports the lump sum. It just depends on your investing philosophy and what your ultimate goals are. 
All things being equal, I could see, and and to your point about the only thing we know is what was listed in the question. It sounds like, from a temperament standpoint, uh, the counselor is thinking about this the right way in yeah. terms of taking opportunities. So I could see all things being equal. You get that lump sum. Maybe you take, I don't know, forty, fifty percent of it because you've got you've got a list of stocks where you're ready to go right there. You deploy that, and then maybe over time you start to do some more research on others. Um, I'm curious though what you think about this idea. Whether it's investing at once or doing it over time, are you in favor of not investing the whole thing? Of just saying, okay, here's this money I'm rolling over from my 401k. For the sake of argument, let's say it's fifty thousand dollars. Are you are you in favor of saying? Well, eventually I'm going to get to the point where 45,000 is invested, but I'm keeping that I'm keeping 10% on the sidelines for down the road. I always enjoy having a little dry powder as they call it, a little extra cash in there just to be able to to do what I what I want when I want. I mean, it's a very it's very understandable. We get that question a lot: Is what do I do with this cash in my portfolio? Because as you can imagine, if you dollar cost average, a real source of that underperformance is the fact that you've got cash sitting there doing nothing, um, and, and and that's a problem, right? Uh, depending on your timeline and how far along you want to go with this, I I tend to be a little bit more um, deliberate and methodical. Um, I'm also investing everything into individual stocks. Uh, my my. My 401k plan here at work—that's what every every month that goes into an S&P 500 index fund, and so that's my index fund exposure. Anything else that I have, uh, I you know I'm investing in individual stocks, and in order to do that, you need to, you need to keep some capital on the ready, or you need to prepare you need to be prepared to sell something in order to buy something. So I, I I'm a little bit more of the mindset of uh, deliberate and slow and steady wins the race. But with that said, I mean Nick's Nick's. You know his his argument here was really sound. I mean, there is data that shows if you just have a lump sum and you just want to get this thing working for you in the market, I mean, really the better bet probably is to go ahead and lump sum it because you just want to get that thing working for you as quickly as possible and avoid having those excessive cash balances dragging in your account because the longer you go on, I mean, ultimately those markets really just do go in one direction. You can feel pretty good about that. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.